0: Knockback, the retro and nostalgia podcast, is brought to you by, well, you. If you want to learn how to support our show, go to patreon.com laststandmedia. Greetings and salutations. Welcome back to Knockback. My name is Colin Moriarty. I'm joined, as always, by my brother Dagan, new fish Moriarty. Dagan, thank you for joining me today. How are you, my friend?
1: What say you, fuzzy britches? <laughs> How's life, my friend? Everything is everything. It's another Friday here in uh, PA, Pensatucky, as PJ would call it. Uh, Yeah, everything's rolling along. Just storyboarding today. I'm kind of in like storyboard mode. Mm -hmm. Kind of got like storyboard problems wrapped around my neck like so much spaghetti
2: wrapped around uh, those
1: nuts. It's nice to take a break from it. Let's put it that way. Yeah, sure, 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 sure. <laughs> How
0: well, are you doing? It's good, to, it's good to lay eyes on you, my friend. I'm I'm uh, I'm well, thank you. I actually thought you'd appreciate this. I I never buy limited run games like physical games mm-hmm. ever. But I made an exception. But you can see if you can accept. Exi- I'm just going to hold on a second, see if you recognize the music. Oh, this my goodness. Yep. Yeah. What is this? It's a Castlevania. Legacy collection thing, I thought you'd like. Wow! I don't know if you're really gonna be able to see it, but in you're the, coming in, video- in low
1: res. You guys will see yeah, it better. Yeah, I know. you'll
0: see it when when cause we for people that don't know, we use ZenCaster, which is awesome, but it gives us it's perfect low latency audio and video recorded, but it reduces our own quality while we record.
1: Wow! So it's like a wow. give or take kind of thing. What is that but, uh, music coming from? Does it is a little switch on the it's outside. It's like a little
0: shadow box kind of thing. Whatever they call that. It's Dude, cool. It's fantastic. like it's based on Castlevania two and three. It looks like a you know, clock tower and, and all that um, bloody. However, tears. I, I, I wanted to complain about one thing and then praise one thing. OK, one thing I wanted to praise and you won't be able to see this either, is that they they include high resolution box oh, art. I do see that enough to know what that is? So Castlevania look Castlevania at this two, Castlevania three Love it now. But here's a complaint. One of the most things I was most excited about, in fact, I bought two copies of this for and it's expensive, it's over a hundred dollars each, for this reason. Oh, let me see. A double sided poster. Okay. But the poster isn't is all folded up. Oh no. So, uh, like you know, like we used to get them in a, in a Nintendo box or something. Yeah. So it's like the big box art, you those know, creases. and the Castlevania three box art. And I was amped when I saw that. I was like, "Oh my god, I have to get those framed." Like, frame them. because you know, like there's there's no high res art from these from these games no. of these no, particular no. versions. Dude. So like. The box art is awesome, but I was bummed about this. So now I just have an unopened copy of the game, which will probably be worth a fortune um, in, at some point. But I literally bought two just because I, 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 Mike and I were discussing it. I, I don't love very many video games this much. Yes. And I don't love very many video. I love video games, but not enough to go buy the merch or like get things. There's very few. Mega Man, of course, I'm all over that, right? Of course, but of Castlevania course. is one of those things. And we never get anything. So when when that was available, I was like, oh, oh my God, yeah, of course, I got to get that. But she was laughing because I was like, it, it's um, apparently this is limited run. I don't know. The, you get cards when you buy them and this is card 406 and 407. And I've okay. never bought limited run before. So this is like I'm jumping in here real late. Yeah, and, they do uh, some and cool it'll never stuff be back. It's pricey, never, we'll though. It's it pricey. pricey but you it have to cool. justify
1: your love, you know. For th- now, those creases in the posters. There's no way to remedy that. There's no. I way I would imagine not. I
0: right? Like know. maybe there is. There but might be. If you have like a hot table or something, like uh, like I watch this art restoration guy, Bumgartner restoration on YouTube. It's awesome. And he has a, a hot table and he like puts like ancient painting. Well, not ancient, but old paintings underneath. And, you know, it like crushes everything to the surface and like makes sure everything stays on. Oh, wow. I never even knew about this. Oh, dude, you'd love that guy. That's right. Te- What's his name? Bomb Baum, Baumgartner, like B-A-U-M, Gartner. OK. Restoration. Good shit. I'm going to oh, check that shot. out. Yeah. He's out right, of Illinois. Cool. I think cool, you'll enjoy cool. him. But yeah, that's all that's going on, my friend. Um, yeah, you're back from your Travels and yes, here you are. We talked, I think we talked talk about that last I week. I think right? we did, yeah. I can't, yeah. can't touch on Toronto
1: anything. a little bit. My fascination right. with that's the right. city I had never been to before, my preconceptions right. versus what I really found up there. Really cool place, man. Yeah,
0: that's right. That's right. Yeah, so yeah, n- otherwise, nothing really happening here. Dad's actually on his way here. Oh, what? Uh, I think Full F- well, Finley, our one of our nephews, is in a play this weekend for James oh. and the Giant Peach. I think it's one of my favorite stories Roald Dahl and Dolph. so I think dad's coming down for that and Sweet. hanging out so he's sleeping here actually tonight and tomorrow but so we have a we have a, a visitor incoming
1: very cool and, I uh, missed dad I haven't seen him in quite some time I think it's Finn isn't Finn's birthday in the offing as well mm. I get confused with the nieces and I do too. I think his birthday is in- he's got an August birthday doesn't he I think it's
0: September, isn't it? Dana's Might birthday is August 19th. Yes,
1: Dana's is... we have any other August birthdays in the fam? I don't think so. No. Dana's was Not always the of. iconic.
0: I only know... The only birthdays I really know off the top of my head, outside of like a couple of friends and, and Micah and stuff, are my mom and dad and my siblings. That's it. <laughs> I think <laughs> those both are the birth, Those are the birthdays I know. And I actually make fun of the boys, like the, our nephews, because they don't know each other's birthdays. And I'm like, that's weird. That, that is... You know, that's like tough. I'm like, you don't know your mom's birthday? And he's like... <laughs> It's in the summer, like, you know, I'm
1: like, how do you not know your mom's birthday? I was going to ask you your opinion on this. Do you remember being that age, like, you know, grade school and not know, because I really honestly think, sadly, both of my kids finally know my birthday as of two years ago. You know, they would be like, yeah, the same thing, like, it's in the winter. And then as they got a little older, they they would know it was in December, but they didn't know the number. Right. And then they knew, like, it had a six in it. But they would guess like 16 or 20. You know, it was like ridiculous. It's like, how do you not know this? I knew my parents' birthdays when I was five.
0: Yeah, dad's yeah. October 2nd, mom's September 16th. Brats. Both 1950. Yes. Dana is December one to remember, 6th, I feel like. 1973. Dana is August 19th, 1975. And then Correct. Allie is February 6th,
1: 1979. Correct. I'm October 14th, 1984. Right. Right, you are. Mm-hmm. And then my mom's and dad's anniversary always played into that too, right? October 1st it was always easy. Right. To go and I'm going to have an October
0: 1st. anniversary because I'm getting married in October as well. Yes. So.
1: Rocktober.
0: Rocktober. Cocktober. <laughs> <laughs> as I'm now going to be referring to it and as forever.
1: Guy,
0: nice. <laughs> <laughs> well done, my friend. Deep sex. I was, look, I was looking at my G.I. Joe's re- recently and just thinking of all this, sex. the sexual names we, we would give. <laughs> the deep sex. I There's a G.I. I'm. Joe named Deep Six. <laughs> We couldn't help ourselves; but call him deep I sex. I forgot
1: about deep sex. I did not forget about Snow
0: Job. Snow Job. You don't have to say anything. That's his real name. Can't forget about Snow Job. Um, all right. Well, we can get right into it. I guess we, you know a, a shorter intro section, which is fine. I have nothing to really say to you people right now. Not bad. Not bad.
2: Today's episode is brought to you by Angie. Download the free Angie mobile app today or visit Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I.com. Okay.
0: Well, Dave, today's topic is a special one, actually. It's the Shawshank Redemption. And what's interesting about this one is that I kind of want to say it's a listener inquiry winner you know we do the annual or not the annual the monthly poll on patreon patreon.com slash last day media you guys submit your inquiries and then and your ideas we vote and we we have the topic come out and, and we do a bunch of those it's basically one in four topics we do is voted by you however the Shawshank Redemption is one I chose but I chose it because it is always on the the ballot and never wins <laughs> How and dare people you? really get bummed about it and so And they were like they were getting like bummed. Like, why is it? it, Because I I would say I delete all the the old elections. I like keeping Patreon really clean. I I don't keep anything there that doesn't need to stay there. Like all the threads get deleted, all that kind of shit. Sure. So the the things go away. So I don't know the exact number, but I would say it's probably been in at least 10 elections, if not more. Wow. And, you know, there's only five choices in every election. So just mathematically, it should have won twice at some point point. It never won at all just because it was going up against stiff competition. Piggies. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. So I was like, you know what? I'm going to throw you a bone. Oh,
1: no. and we're going to Bandova. Bandova came. Oh, yeah, Rick.
0: <laughs> little boy blue, he needed the money. <laughs> <laughs> oh, dude, that is an aw- that is a, such an awesome little boy blue. He needed the money. You know that he thought that that was like the funniest thing ever. That yeah. was that was the best one, probably. Yeah.
1: little boy, dude, That blue. was a sensation when I was in junior high school. He I just remember that like yeah. him <laughs> on the comedy scene when I was in junior high school and all the high school kids that we looked up to listening to that stuff. It was like, I guess it was the same thing as Eddie Murphy like jumping on the scene in the 80s, right?
0: It was really raunchy. Like I've listened to, I think, one or two of his albums. We're talking about Andrew Dice Clay, by the way. Of course, Dice. uh, Dice Man. And it's pretty raunchy shit. Like it's like needlessly. I like raunchy shit, but it's needlessly like sexist, misogynistic, as opposed to funny. You know, it's like it's not even funny. Yeah, really. It's like, all right, dude, you are just like it's really hit. Yeah, I like mean. I love roasts and all that kind of shit. I think that stuff is so funny and over the top, but it's got to be funny. You know, like I've said before, one of the great ones was Bob Saget when like basically the entire roast was about like insinuating that he was a pedophile because <laughs> like he had a relationship with the Olsen twins and shit. <laughs> and that's hysterical. Like that's a, like because those guys were actually funny. Right. But Andrew Dice Clay is not funny. He's awesome, but he's not funny. No, he and, had a gimmick yeah. and he just milked it yeah. for all it was worth. Right. People should go check him out if they if they want oh, yeah, dude. He would smoke cigarettes on stage. He wore like a leather jacket. And his big thing, if people were watching it, dig into or anybody who smoked the cigarette <laughs> I couldn't even do it. I like, can't
1: even do it. <laughs> it's so it weird. I don't,
0: he was, and he had a show on VH1, I want to say 15 years ago or maybe less, where he was trying to come back. It was called Dice Dice Undisputed. I think it was pretty cool. Yeah. I could see him because he's become like a...
1: I don't know if he does does like serious turns now. No, that's in, what I was going to say. Yeah. 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 And he's good. Mm-hmm. He's like one of those dudes that was like, oh, am I going to buy him? In the, and then he's in it. And he's like, oh, yeah, no, there's some gravity here to this performance. Like he reinvented. It's himself. almost like he
0: wasted his time. Yeah. You know? <laughs> right. like, like he should have been an actor the whole time. He's Instead one of those of dudes that could do it. Yeah. Yeah, that's cool. I like I like that story about him, too. Anyway, I don't know how we got off on that. Shawshank Redemption, <laughs> September 1994 release directed by Frank Darabont, starring Tim Robbins, Morgan Freeman, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Clancy Brown is in there. A few others. And this is a a work based on a Stephen King short story. I think it's actually a novella. Yeah. I've never read it. I've not read very many Stephen King things. I've read a couple of books, The Stand, a few things. And because that's like really more my shit. He doesn't write anything like The Stand. The Stand is very different for him. And and then Children of the Corn, which is on in Night Shift, the short story compilation. That's like my favorite Stephen King work. But I don't really know anything about him uh, apart from that. But it's based on a work of his was optioned made into this film. And this film is a classic. I mean, this is it wasn't huge when it came out. I was looking at the numbers. It did about three times gross. So it it was that's nice. But but that's not like a mega smash hit unless you're spending hundreds of millions of dollars and making hundreds of millions of dollars in profit. But it did well enough. And in syndication on video and later on DVD, I think it it created a, a strong fan base of people that enjoyed it. And Watching it last night. Actually, I'll start with James Ketchum because he says, and and of course, you could write in on Patreon. He says, hello, Moriarty bros. Did you ever actually see this whole movie unedited start to finish before viewing it for this episode? (laughs) Or did you only ever see it in bits and pieces on TNT, a.k.a. the Shawshank channel? I think it aired at least two times every 24 hours for a decade. I was thinking that I didn't know where it was. It must have been TNT. You must be right. I was watching the movie. And there were things to be happening where I was like, "Oh yeah, I remember that." And then there would be stretches where I'm like, "I don't remember any of this at all." And then like I don't remember the end. I didn't remember the ending at all. Like the, the whole thing with them on the beach and all. I, I'm oh, like, I no? don't remember this at all. No, that's fine. But then I remember the poster getting taken down. I remember the Bible with the the imprint in it. I remember the sisters and all the random shit that goes on. So I I think I was one of those people that saw it in this way. I don't actually know if I've ever sat down and seen this movie by intent. Before I went and rented it on Amazon Prime, so I have definitely seen it. I have definitely seen it several times, but it must be one of those things. I don't watch movies like that anymore. I don't think anyone does. Where you would sit down and be like, "All right, I'm going to take four hours and watch this two-hour movie on TNT," because that's what it would require required. Sure. Because it'd be commercial breaks every fifteen minutes. <laughs> I used to watch. Movies. I, I
1: can't. We used to watch things like that. Yeah. Can you
0: believe that? I that's can't how, even, they, that's how that. they got you.
1: Lazy Sunday afternoon. They got you laying on the couch, eating snacks in your box of shorts. They have you. you, you have, they have a captive audience. They they knew exactly what they were doing. Yeah, TNT, USA. It probably crept onto the main networks, too. Yeah. I can't believe you did shit like that. Yeah, and yeah, that's yeah. why
0: when I, I always say mom still watches TV like that, and I'm like, mom, you don't have she to She really do does. She's like the last holdout, I feel like. Yeah. You don't have to do it. You don't <laughs> have to do it like that. <laughs> She's old school. So what? So what's your history with this film? Did you see it in the theater or do you remember seeing it back in the day? I was 10 when it came out. I, I don't I dad dad and I used to go to movies all the time and we used to see adult movies together. So we I may have just missed this one. This was the same year Forrest Gump came out and I definitely saw that in the theater. So yeah. so I might have just missed this. I don't, I don't really remember, to be honest. But definitely was in syndication, and that's certainly where I caught it. How about you? Where did you first see this film? Do you remember?
1: Yeah, Forrest Gump. I think Pulp Fiction. That was a pretty phenomenal yeah, a good year, year for cinema, a good year. right? For movies. Yeah. It's funny, Kyle. I love, I love that. Like having not really knowing if you saw it by intent, because I really don't remember the first time I saw this film. I really, had, I don't recall, but I have seen it many times, and it is a beloved movie in my eyes. Like, I really enjoy it, but it is one of those films you caught on TV and you would just watch the rest of it from wherever you jumped in. And, you know, I really wanted to go back and see if I could explore my origins with it a little bit because I do really love it. And so I watched it for the show, back-to-back nights, and just really tried to soak it in, sop it all up. But I'll tell you, what I respond to in this film has not changed. It's this it's one of my favorite stories, maybe it's fair to say one of my favorite movies about friendship. It's about friendship. It's about brotherhood. That's sort of the nucleus at the center of this thing for me. And, you know, it's a bromance. I mean, it really is. Mm -hmm. It's just a straight up. And I don't think too many movies do that, especially, you know, you have buddy cop pictures. Let's think of like our beloved Lethal Weapon series, right? You have two friends. But, it's an action set, it's an action vehicle. There's something going on there. It's a different formula, it's a different genre. This is just a story straight up about friendship. And I'll tell you what I what I find interesting, because we all know, like, you go on IMDb, it's one of the most highly rated, universally beloved movies. I think it's just below or above Goodfellas. I haven't checked recently. But it's got this huge notoriety, and everybody adores it, right? So you go in and look at it, and it's interesting, Kyle, because this movie, very relatable, right? It's got that popcorn flavor to it a little bit. It's warm. It's kind of inviting. It's, yeah, it has that warm and fuzziness. It's sentimental. It is a sentimental film, has a happy ending. But at the same time, it's interesting because I find it a little bit challenging. It could be complex. It has some darkness, It explores, you know, sort of these really evil characters in there. It's beautifully crafted. It's wonderfully casted and acted. It's beautifully shot. So it's it's sort of walks that line. That's, I think, rare and unique in that it's a popcorn movie. And, you know, kind of universally, you could watch it with your grandma, you know, and they'll get something out of it. You watch it with your 10 year old, maybe, maybe a little older. Prison rapes, not the best thing. And yeah, it has yeah. the art film thing, so it has both things going on. It I scare I, him straight. <laughs> Boggs and the sisters, maybe not. Yeah, they like, you old. pick up your kid after he
0: did like something bad at school. You're like, you know, you know, meet the sisters to keep this
1: <laughs> the this <sisters>. conduct up. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it's got a lot to offer, and I think that's what people, it's got a little something for everybody, maybe, except maybe the 10-year-olds, like I said.
0: This is, yeah, maybe, I mean, depending on your, you know, your era, but actually, before I get into because I think I have, a, I think I have a pulse on what it is, but I, before I share that, I want to read this from Jason 3D1, he says, because yeah. he's on a similar vein, he's saying, boys, this movie will always be one of my favorites. My girlfriend and I had an inside joke going for years where she would refuse to watch this movie as she's never seen it. It drove me nuts, but she finally watched it last week on my birthday. At the end, she just shrugs. It was okay, as I'm wiping away tears. This movie seems to move me more every time I watch it. She asks why it means so much to me, and I wasn't able to come up with a decent answer on the spot. I hate to say bromance, but I think it's the way Andy and Red's relationship is built during the film. The hug on the beach gets me every time. In your opinion, what is it makes it, what is it that makes this movie a classic? I, I think, here's what I think, I thought about this, because... The Shawshank Redemption, I, I think, is a great movie, like a demonstrably a great movie. But I don't I personally don't think of it as like one of the greats. I don't know if it was because it was run into the ground. It's always oh, kind of this this ethereal thing in the air for the last 25, 30 yeah. years, where it's just yeah. oh, it's just everywhere. And right. You can't really avoid it. And I think what makes Shawshank special is that. It's a generally acceptable movie to almost everyone for maybe different reasons, but it's it's basically the if you made AI create a movie that would be most appealing to as many people as possible in the highest quality, I think you'd get a movie like Shawshank Redemption. In other words, I think it just, it's just beloved by a lot of people. It actually reminds me a lot of Forrest Gump in that way. It's the same. Forrest Gump's less loved over time than this movie, but true. That kind of movie where everyone kind of watched it and understood it was part of the ethos of America in the mid nineties to watch these various cultural touchstone Um, period pieces and I think that's what it is about the Shawshank Redemption I just I that's that's what I think it is I just think it's like the perfectly crafted film for the consensus and so it just bubbles up to the top because it's something that's inoffensive. it's it's offensive in many ways but it's inoffensive it's heartfelt and I think it's multiple layers deep I don't think I ever got anything that I got out of it when I watched it yesterday last night that I get when I was younger. I don't think I got, I got a single thing out of the movie when I was younger compared to what I got out of it now. So does mm. that make sense? Do you think that there's
1: something to that that theory? Absolutely. And I, you know, I also ought to echo that sentiment. I cry every time I watch this at the end. That embrace on the beach, that genuine, authentic sort of the two friends coming together finally and being able to live out the rest of their lives together. That that sort of genuine bromance. And I think something at the something with the origins of that friendship. I think the black and white thing does probably play into it a little bit for me as far as something that really appeals to me and i think appealed to me as a kid too like noticing that friendship transcend the racial boundaries not to play that up too much or sound cheesy but also these two characters sort of meeting by chance and also coming from two completely different walks of life maybe even being two slightly different ages which are not, they're not too specific about And just sort of the most unlikeliest of friendships you would think blossoming in this time, in this place, under these conditions, these adverse conditions. And I think there's just something really moving about that. And the fact that it's this unrelenting, uncompromising love, you know, between these two. To men, and I think I don't even think it's understated. I think a lot, a lot of it you just read into as a as a captive audience member. I just think it's very well done, and for me, that's really what tickles the heartstrings. And I, I have to say, too, Kyle, something I noticed in these last two watchings: the music in this film is very manipulative emotionally, but I think in all the best ways. When those strings come in. When those violins come in and it's time to the moments, and you just kind of well up and you realize you're being and you realize in the moment that you're being manipulated, but it doesn't even matter because it's kind of an enjoyable experience. And also, I think, an earned payoff at the end. You know, they had to come through some pretty horrific shit, these characters, to arrive at that specific happy ending, which, again, you could say it's sentimental, but it's not it never felt. Cheesy for me, it's, it felt satisfying. So, yeah, all the all those things, I think another thing that makes this movie tick for me is
0: this idea that. And I think it's to your point, it never. It never succumbs to its actual surroundings, you're talking about with race and all this. But it's true. And maybe that's the main setting. You know, it's always had an abolitionist. I mean, this is well after slavery, but it's always had the abolitionist feel. It's always been forward thinking in that way. It doesn't even really come up. And that might be true to the setting in the time as well, which is an interesting insight. But stripping away how they got there. And I want to talk about that, like how they all get to prison Mm -hmm. and how that's all glossed over. I think that's by intention, obviously. And I like how the movie is able to segment the crime and the criminality, which is its own thing and important, really important. And we'll talk about it to the human element of imprisonment and how it changes a person. And it should give, I think, I think one of the reasons maybe again, why this movie resonates with so many people is that it forces us to confront this group of people that always exist on the outside of society where they're put there often because of their own actions, but how that indelibly affects them. And that's the sad part. The Stockholm syndrome that we see almost develop with Brooks and with, with red later on about not wanting to be out about wanting to go back in. You hear that to this day. And I think maybe it's that sadly the timelessness of this really fucked up prison system we have in the United States that I think could use with a lot of, Improvement then, certainly, and still now about sure. enrichment and letting people just waste away. I don't know, I, it may it challenges you. And I think because they avoid all of the crime, basically, we know that Andy was there falsely accused for these crimes he was going to commit, but didn't. Right. But we don't know, as Red says, like everyone's innocent, right? Like no one here is guilty. Red says he's guilty, but not everyone else but they kind of deftly avoid all of that so that you focus in on the human aspect of it. There's a human aspect to the crime and to the victims, but there's also a human element to the imprisonment and that's the only focus and I think that that's kind of nice because when you think about something like Oz, which I, I would think about as the only other ma- well, I mean, there's a lot of prison movies, but as far as shows are concerned that aren't soapy prison break or whatever, Oz is really the only show that deals with that and That show is all about the crime and it's all about how fucked up those people are. And that's an entirely different component of it. So I like that they strip that away and force you to just not even pay attention to it. You stop even asking or wondering. I mean, I did anyway. You want to know, but then by the end, you don't even care what anyone did. But that's not normal either because it just strips away all the the pretense of that. and, And again, makes you focus on them as individual prisoners and what it's like to be a prisoner. Rape. You know, horrible food, solitary, cold and ill-fitting clothes and uncomfortable beds and no room to move and constant risk of abuse and physical threats and death around every corner. And it makes you ask, why is it even like that? And I've asked, I've asked myself that for years. Like, why is prison so fucked up? In, on one hand, you can understand that. But on the other hand, it's weird that we let it become that way. Yeah, it's by intent and design. And we should ask ourselves, like when everyone's like that guy's getting raped in prison and everyone laughs. It's like. Why is that guy getting raped in prison? You know, and I think that that's the kind of film
1: this is. Does that make sense? Dow, no, absolutely. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it really does get you thinking about, I guess, any prison movie really does, although I don't see this as your prototypical prison movie. But it really gets you thinking about, you know, the institution of prison, punishment versus forgiveness, you know, making things so stark and barren and lean and uncomfortable in terms of, you know, as a deterrent. You know, in order to say this is a place you don't want to be. You serve your sentence, you get out and you're reformed. You don't want to be back in this place versus, you know, the idea of humanity. And, you know, as a human on human thing, like how badly do you want to treat people? There's so many interesting questions that I think and so much gray area in exploring that, you know, I think that what you would at first perceive as a black and white there's so much gray in there and so many things there's so many themes to explore and just just that area alone of just human imprisonment and prison system then and now and you know i guess how much it really hasn't changed and definitely calling into question evolution and needed evolution and how some people think Maybe it's perfectly fine the way it is right now too, and and what gives us those differences, those differences of opinion, and all that. I think my opinion certainly of prison and imprisonment and punishment, capital punishment. I think that's all. It's definitely changed. My view on that has definitely changed over the over the years. But when you watch the movie, you're definitely thinking about that. You know, and just think about this too, Kyle. Like this, this is we we jump in in nineteen what forty seven. New England, certainly a different time, a different place. But this movie pretty much says there are horrors, right? You're dealing with a corrupt warden. You're dealing with a captain of the guards who's brutal. You're dealing with a bunch of inmates in there that have a group that go unchecked, that go around raping people and all of these things. But by and by, they're also saying, like, pretty much if you stay in check and behave yourself... You could have a pretty comfortable existence, at least enough where if you go in when you're young and you become institutionalized, it becomes all, you know, it becomes comfortable in a way. Red's getting you what you need. You're getting, you know, three squares a day. You have friends. You have yard time. You might get a little older. You you go from the wood shop or the license plate shop to the library. Right. You're delivering books to people. It's a pretty it becomes normal and it becomes comfortable and I think that also speaks to humans adapting and the way they could evolve the situations and stuff. So that's interesting too. Like unless you get out of you get out of order and you get put in the hole, right? Which seems horrific, especially for a claustrophobic. Like that's one of the most horrifying realities I could possibly imagine. But there's that too. It's like, you know, was it was it too easy to do that time? Especially being a murderer, you know? Who knows? I don't know. I don't know what the answer it's, is there.
0: Well, that's the difficult thing, actually, because someone wrote in about this. Yeah. Um, actually, Andy Kapp wrote in about this, who I think was the person who kept submitting this for election every every <laughs> your, month. Your wishes are command, Andy Cap. He says, hello, sisters. What are your thoughts about the main character's reasons for being in prison not being mentioned? Red was in prison for tampering the brakes on his wife's car to collect insurance money, mm-hmm. which resulted in her death and two other strangers. Brooks was arrested for killing his wife and child after losing his money in a poker game. Would this have changed your feelings about these characters if you learned this in the movie? Oh, I didn't know that for all your great work. Great stuff. So this must be in the novella or whatever. Yeah. And I think it's smart to keep it out if the message is what I think it is, or at least trying to focus on something that removes their crimes from, again, the human aspect of it, not focusing, in other words, again, on the human aspect of the crime, but on the imprisonment. But here's what I think is interesting. We have this and this is what made me made me where my mind kind of went. We have this thing in the US and we're all, we're in they're in Maine. We're in the United States prison system in this movie, where we're very serious in the US about the First Amendment, right? And the Second Amendment and the Ninth Amendment and the Tenth Amendment and the Fourteenth Amendment. But what about the Sixth Amendment, right? When and I and I have my Constitution of the United States right here. Uh this is I got this when I was a freshman in college and I still use it to this very day. Very nice. And uh Amendment six says in part that a person will have a compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. Right. So the warden denies this to Andy by murdering that guy. Right. I mean, obviously murdering that guy is also a crime, but there was no attention paid to the fairness of what his right is even being a horrible person. And then Amendment 8, excessive bail should not be required, nor excessive fines imposed, nor cruel and unusual punishments inflicted. This is what I'm saying. Like, I don't. Wow. It makes you focus in on why we as a society then and now allow this to persist. Like prison shouldn't. I personally don't think prison should be an unsafe place. I think prison should be a pretty miserable place. But you can't put people in positions like where we're just we look at them as dogs and just throw them away, basically. And I really like that this film even though it's not as simple as saying they don't deserve that because they do deserve something. And sometimes I think that something is execution, which is which is what's so fascinating. It's like you either rehabilitate people and give them a chance, keep them in prison, I guess, for life if you want to pay that or execute them. But like this wishy washy shit that they do to these men in this movie, at least in this story with their parole and kind of the repeated answers and never expecting to get out and then getting out and not feeling, uh, not seeing the real world for what it is and being scared or whatever. I just think that that's a a really relevant point to bring up that they also have rights that maybe it tugs on our heartstrings because they're being thrown in the hole for a month or two. That's unthinkable, right? For anyone. And I don't know. I think that the movie would have been really injured if we knew any more about the crime. The story, the, I, again, I can't read. I can't talk about reading it. I, I don't know. What, what do you think
1: about not knowing what they did? Yeah, I was really fascinated at this because, first of all, I think Red is such a wonderful character. And, you know, he's our guide. He's our guide into this world. He's indeed he's our, you know, he's narrating the story. And you got Morgan Freeman's warmth and appeal as the vehicle for that. So and he's the main character. So i do think i was fascinated because i heard morgan freeman i always wondered about this never read the book or the novella either and heard morgan freeman in an interview a few days ago say that he was a wife murderer that he murdered his wife of course him having read the book i'm sure and all that and i went and researched that and what it is is he he was a kid who grew up poor and fatherless he married purposely married a very wealthy woman I believe with the intent of recouping her very high insurance policy money and tampers with the brakes of her car. Unbeknownst to him, she was picking up a neighbor and their infant as well. So when the brakes went out and this car crashed, he murdered three people and he was a kid. He was a new he was a newlywed. And they leave. Of course, as we know, they leave that out of the movie. And I have to say, I do think that notion of Red being a murderer by intent and also murdering three people, I think that would have been too challenging for a movie going, a general movie going audience. I'm not sure the typical person could have endured that and loved Red the same way and gotten past that. At the same time, I am interested in having the courage to put that in there into the film and seeing if people could overcome that challenge and still feel the same way about this character by the end. But that was my through line into wanting to know what each of these guys were in for. And it's only later when that young rockabilly kid comes into the prison that we know, you know, he was a thief, he was in for B&E and all that kind of stuff. Most of the guys we don't know about. So, and I, I do think that it probably would have been intrusive in this two hour and 24 minute movie, whatever it is film to have put in that put all that weight in there but you do obviously you do think about it especially in terms of the main characters like red it's like what are these guys in for but also isn't that interesting that we want to know that because inherently as humans even in this fictional thing we want to judge we want to suss it out we want to see if we could approve of this one and that one and oh this one was just a uh he was just a crook he was just a thief but this one was a murderer and a rapist I don't know if I could wrap my head around that or come to you know accept this guy and 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 like him and root for him and all that so again our our biases are kind of called into question too which i think is a really interesting part of the film but i think it does have that tone it has that i don't know if i want to say forrest gump tone robert zemeckis is a little different of a director but you know and keep this this film does maintain a certain tone And I think bringing in that data and saying, "Okay, this guy was in for that. This guy was a heinous criminal on the outside. This guy, you know, this type of thing. Um, He ran afoul of the law for years or whatever. I think that would have probably changed the tone of the movie and then you'd have something different. So I'm kind of grateful that they they left it out, I guess.
0: Yeah, I think it serves its purpose for, you know, we don't get the we don't get the chance for too much nuance in a film. So it's good that they left it out, I think. Let's talk about the protagonist, or at least one of them, Tim Robbins's Andy Dufresne. Joseph wrote in and said, "Whilst I don't believe this is the greatest film ever made, like many greatest movies of all time lists would lead someone to believe, its story and message is what I take mo- away the most. Andy Dufresne represents people who believe they are trapped in jobs, relationships, families, locations, turmoil, vices, addictions, debt, depression, and shows how escape can can and almost certainly should be attempted with patient tenacity." doesn't matter whether other people think you are innocent or guilty. It's all summed up nicely in one of the film's most famous lines. Either get busy or die. I'm sorry, either get busy living or get busy dying. Thank you, Joseph, for writing in. So what do you think about Andy Dufresne? Tim Robbins is awesome in this. It's a great role you feel for him because we we know as the viewer that he is ostensibly innocent. We don't know specifically what happened until deep into the movie. But it's interesting that they... um, it's interesting that they focus in on this like very quaint person that's out of place. And in the beginning of the story, show another person who's out of place and like what the repercussions are of showing your emotion and feelings. And instead being kind of robotic and closed, mind, you know, not closed minded, but keeping things closed up inside of you and being focused on a solution. And that's what he represents to me. I kind of agree with this assessment from Joseph. Um, how do you feel about Dufresne, Andy Dufresne and Tim Robbins's? performance
1: he it's such an interesting performance right there's such an eccentricity to this character he really does act it's it's strange he feels like an alien in this place when you watch it he really feels like a true outsider and we know he's got that silver spoon background right we know he's the vice president of a bank he's pretty young and success and already highly successful and he comes into this place and it is interesting because he doesn't come in overly tough or putting on airs like don't mess with me type of thing he doesn't he's not overly cowed by the place he but he doesn't you know he kind of walks somewhere in the middle he has he does almost as red says he does almost act like he's above it or impervious to it all in an odd way and that's very strange and a very interesting take On one of our main protagonists and how they're handling being imprisoned for the first time and going away for life, by the way. And I also love something I realized in this that, you know, you think of Stephen King, you think of overt horror, one of our most prolific horror authors ever. And he'll be mentioned for a long time to come, way after he's gone, just for the sheer amount of stuff he's put out and the variety. But You think of typical horror stuff in the novels and in the movies that sprang out of the novels through the decades. But this is an interesting one because you think, well, how is this horror? But then you realize going to prison for something that you didn't do, being wrongly accused and being imprisoned for life, for two life back to back life sentences is a pretty horrific. That's I mean, as horrific as it gets. I mean, talk about horror. Right. So at the center of this horror thing, that's really the horror there. And this character has to endure that. And you hear all the things with this character, the Andy Dufresne character and the Christ parables and all that. But there is, and supposedly Frank Darabont says, you know, that wasn't intended. But there is something in this that makes this character stand out from everybody else. And I guess at the center of that whole thing is is his hope that this character has this eternal sort of deeply embedded optimism and whereas his friend that we that we're also rooting for red has apparently abandoned that has abandoned hope a long time ago and sort of sees that sees hope as the enemy and as the weakness and as something you don't want to fall for you don't want to be you know, you don't want to because that could ruin you in, in a place like that, having having hope and indeed false hope. So he's a really interesting character. And, you know, you go back and even after watching this movie 10 times, you're like, this is a very odd performance, but I can't even see it any other way. And I can't see it performed by any other actor. I know Kevin Costner was hot and heavy to do this role. I'm not sure if they were considering him. But I can't even see anybody but Tim Robbins playing this. He's Costner would
0: have been interesting. I like Kevin Costner, but yeah, we don't need we don't need Kevin Costner here. Uh, it's just something Tim Robbins that, does a really good job.
1: Yeah, he he shines. He shines in the role. He really. Other oh, than
0: Mystic River, this is like, and of course Merlin and Top Gun. This is the, the the role he's known most for. You sure. know, I think. Yeah, and so it's uh it's it's it's. Uh, very interesting character. I was going to ask you actually how you felt about all the Christian stuff. Do you, do you so that's not intentional according to the filmmaker. No, according uh, to Frank Darabont. I didn't, I didn't read into, I didn't read that into into it either. I'm not that sophisticated of a filmmaker to even have seen that. It's obviously a very religious movie and in, in, sure. it's tenor, but yeah. I don't know that I saw the parable there. So you don't see that either.
1: No, I mean, it's supposedly people have really called that into question. I think I watched a Christian YouTube channel and they were kind of taking it apart piece by piece and they had said, the beer scene on the roof where they're tarring the roof was like the 12 disciples and the last supper. And so there was a lot of things, there was a lot of interesting parallels or I guess coincidences, but you know, and I think they also say he kind of wears his, he kind of, he sort of wears that force field like a, like a, like a jacket, you know, so they, they make a lot of Jesus Christ references And of course, dealing with the warden and the Bible and the Christianity and the no blasphemy and this this hypocritical bad guy and all of these things. I'm sure there's a lot of citing Bible passages right straight up. But supposedly that wasn't, you know, that wasn't a a theme that was conceived or intended.
0: Yeah, I I wonder. Yeah, I wonder. I don't know you don't need it. That's what I'm kind of saying. Like, it's cool that if it would be if it was there and that was the intent and if people read into it. But I just don't think you need that. I think that it it works just as a more straightforward story about American imprisonment and and humanity. Let's talk a little bit about red. Napoleon and rags wrote in and said, Morgan's Freeman, Morgan Freeman's narration throughout this film is definitely a masterclass in storytelling. How do you guys feel about its inclusion? I'm curious how you feel about that, that. One of the one of the protagonists is also the narrator, so there's a more he's more omniscient than the viewer. It's an interesting layer there. Not you don't often see that sometimes you do. What do you think about that? About like selecting Red as the narrator? I assume he is in the book too, but I I don't know for sure. I like that, and of course, Morgan Freeman is such a great VO person that you know, VO actor that it's just it's it's wonderful.
1: Oh, that voice, man! I mean, it's 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 a one in a million voice. Morgan Freeman just has that likability and that warmth, maybe that father like presence, just somebody who, who who you could see sitting around a campfire and just listening to all night. He's got that thing. I love the fact of dealing with narration because oftentimes in films, that's seen as a cheesy way out. You know, it's seen as obvious exposition, an easy way to overcome storytelling problems where maybe you could be a little more inventive or work in the storytelling or exposition as you go in a more nuanced fashion. But so having going with narration is kind of a bold move because it could turn a lot of people off. But I think Frank Darabont said he was kind of coached on and encouraged by movies like and especially Goodfellas, where it's like one of the best, one of the greatest movies. We go go watch our knockback episode, by the way, and said if, if Scorsese could do it in Goodfellas, he would find a way to do it here. But I think putting Morgan Freeman in, it just takes away that problem. You know, it's just like you you, he's somebody who you want to listen to. So it's a very clever way to help the narration succeed.
0: Let's see. I want to kind of jump in now to some of the other characters in the story around us, because we don't even though it's about. Red and Andy, mostly the interactions with the prison warden and the prison guard. There are a couple of other interesting characters that we follow and know, and I would say paramount amongst them is Brooks. Matthew Novak wrote in and said, hello, obtuse ones. This was my first time watching Shawshank, and I loved it. Brooks's inability to rejoin society and suicide broke me, especially due to Thomas Newman's score. What are your thoughts on the movie's portrayal of the U.S. prison system and how inmates are released into the world unprepared for the innovations they missed out on? Also, just to make you two feel whole, this movie came out eight years before I was born. so So you're 20, I guess. So thank you, Matthew, for writing in with Brooks. Brooks, I think, is the most appealing and interesting character in the in the movie. It's really quite simple. He says, I think, that he went to prison in 1904, and 1905. That's insane when you think about it, even from the context of the late 40s, early 50s, when you first learn that that was when Teddy Roosevelt was president. He missed <laughs> that was 10 years before World War One. So he was like an able bodied man that kind of missed all of that, then missed the interwar period, then missed all of World War Two. And It's very. I couldn't get away from thinking about that as I looked at all these men in the prison, maybe maybe exemplified best by Brooks of these guys that like, where were you? Were you there? Do you know? Do you care? Like you missed out. You're like one of the very rare men that wasn't there or wasn't part of this stuff. And that's a whole other angle to imprisonment during this time. But I like this Brooks character because he's obviously good and decent. Well, liked. he's been there for a long time. And he has, you know, his way with the books and he has a lot of like freedom compared to a lot of the other prisoners. But again, as we mentioned earlier, they do a really nice job of hiding why he's there. And if you thought if you knew why he was there, would we feel the same way? I don't know. But I feel the humanity most through him and his experience out in the real world. Imagine going to prison in 1905 and then in the 1950s, you're released, sent to a halfway house and you work as a grocer or a bagging person at a grocery store. That's a fine job, but imagine everything that's changed. And of course they show that visually when he almost gets run over by the car mm. and all this, he writes about the thing in the car. And I don't know. What, what do you think about this character of Brooks and just the, the exceptional performance? I was reading more about the, uh, the actor, James Whitmore. I didn't know much about him, but a pretty storied actor. This was one of his final roles. He kind of retired and did only a few roles in his later years. So I really like this character of Brooke, Brooks, Brooks Hatlin again he never we never get the inclination of the crime he committed except for when he holds the knife to to the guy's neck and we see like wow this guy's fucking this like the this guy's crazy he's he's been here he's done it like this is the old brooks so what do you uh what do you think of him
1: yeah i mean this character's story is so sad and heartbreaking right and talk about this the thing of being institutionalized and yeah i love that when he says you know he saw in the early 1900s he he had seen a car But he wasn't expecting them to be everywhere 50 years later and, you know, not even knowing how to cross the street in this brave new world. And the world's already been like this for decades. He just didn't know, you know, just to be so sheltered from what life was really like. And to to the the notion is so interesting. And I guess most normal people like us don't really think about this. But you go into a place to prison when you're super young and then you're there for decades in Brooks's case, five decades. And, you know, that's half a century. And that's all, you know, life inside those walls, how meals work, how going to the bathroom works, how sleeping works, how working. Dude, that's works. longer than either of us have been alive. That's, like, insane. that's insane. It's insane. I, I thought yeah. about that. You know that how recreation works, all of these things. You only know things one way. You know, that's all you know, and then you're released. That's such an oversight in the prison system. And I do wonder, being not educated at all in this area, if this has been remedied, but releasing people after they've been imprisoned for fifty years to this alien world, this cosmic world of like a job, living in a place, having these freedoms. It's basically really what this is is it's it's freedom. Versus not having freedom and not knowing what to do, given those freedoms, not asking permission to go to the bathroom. Yeah, I like that particular
0: shot, like when he's like, I got, you know, bathroom break balls. (laughs) Because they don't know.
1: You know, even in Red's case, even after being there for half that time, you know, you get institutionalized, you get accustomed to one way of doing things and that freedom, having that freedom at your fingertips, you think would be a wonderful thing. And maybe it is for certain people that don't develop that Stockholm syndrome, but that's a really scary notion and something that I'm sure really wasn't considered. I think the basic human emotion to somebody getting out of prison and getting their freedom back is like relief and happiness, right? You, you get a second chance at your life, redemption, and what it really is, is is horror. You know, right. and that's another horror at the center of the story a terror not knowing what to do and how to be. Well, this is what tugs at my
0: heartstrings and why I think that we need to have more in, like more serious and interesting conversations about imprisonment generally, like if we knew for me, if I knew the crime that Brooks committed, he would have never been up for parole. It's insane to think he would have ever gotten out at all. Right. This is where I talk about the humanity of saying like a person who's killed his wife and kid can't be brought back into society at all. So now we have to ask ourselves, do we just imprison this person forever? Or should he be executed? And that's obviously people have different outlooks on that, but I just feel like he should have never been out at all. That's kind of the strange part. Like the parole is pretty loose around there when people that are getting out, you know, red killed three people and gets out like that. That's not happening anymore. Like the people that killed three people are not getting out of prison. However, and I've said this. I don't know if I've ever said this publicly, but I've said this privately. I do feel like. Prison. Shouldn't be. How do I put this? It shouldn't be like a stigma once you get out in the sense that you're forced to have a parole officer. You have to sign, you know, if you, you have to say, well, if you're a sexual offender, you have to sign up for you know these lists that make you unemployable. Right. And you have to. And no one wants to live around you and all of that. And you can't vote, although that's different now and just and so on and so forth. And I just think about that sometimes. And I'm like, okay, this is seems to be what people want. But why won't we just keep them in prison then? Because you're basically sending them out to just be fucked and and they're just going to end up back here, which comes back to the point of like, why don't we focus more on if we really want to have a more just prison system? We should we should focus more on rehabilitating people and giving them skills and education I, I, I watch this guy on YouTube sometimes that's like one of these guys that went to prison and he talks about his experiences in prison. And what he says, he said something that stuck with me because I imagine that it's probably true. He says, dude, the, the people in prison, a lot of the people in prison are so fucking stupid, like some of the like the dumb. And that's not that's not hard to believe. He says something like you can't even believe the things these guys say and think are true and all these things and. I'm like, that's that makes sense. That's the kind of person that would commit these kinds of heinous crimes. But since you have them captive. Why don't you educate them even by force? Why don't you force them to like we force children who didn't do anything to go to school?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Interesting point.
0: You know, if you're 16, you have to go to school. You're you know, your parent literally has to emancipate you for you not to go to school. But we have prisoners and they're just sitting and languishing. And whether they're there for something heinous and ridiculous or not, shouldn't we try to make them better people just because they're there? In other words, the punitive nature of prison, I totally get, but it seems to be taking to the nth degree where it's like, no, you sit here and fucking rot. And then maybe one day when you get out, You've never used a computer. You don't fuck you. Maybe you're illiterate or don't know how to read. You've been sitting in a six by six cell for 25 years for armed robbery or whatever you did. We have no fucking interest in bettering you. We don't give a fuck about you. Bye. Get out. And then we'll see you in five months when you come back when you for recidivism and all of that. And I just think there has to be a conversation around around this. Maybe I'm sensitive to it because my, my ex-girlfriend, who's a Ph.D., her, her doctorate was in recidivism in prisons and. All the different things that it contribute to it. Hers, I think, was a, her her um, PhD was about mental like concussions and all that, and how that leads to recidivism. Oh but,
1: wow, I didn't know that. that's interesting. Yeah, but it's
0: I just I'm kind of sensitive to it. It's just maybe it's the, like the I am a real mush inside, even though I don't think a lot of people know that about me. I really am, and I just see stuff like this, and I'm like, if you're going to imprison them, I'm not saying they should live in a Hilton or something like that, and like have a resort, but. Can't you do something to enrich them and give them a chance? Maybe isn't that part of the contract, the social contract, the imprisonment and then the release once you've done your time. And so when you do your time, can't vote. Good luck living anywhere. Good luck getting any credit. Good luck doing this. Good luck doing that. And it's like, I don't know if that's really doing your time. You're still doing your time now. And I, I just A lot of people are scared to say that, but we have such a fucking prison industry in the United States that no one says it. But it's it's actually these thoughts are actually quite normal in other parts of the world.
1: Yeah. 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 I think a lot of what you say makes sense, Kyle. I mean, you you know, because you have these guys in, you want them to have a true chance at reformation and self-improvement. So when they get out, they could have a crack at being you know, uh, a, a successful citizen, one that contributes to society and all of this, right? I guess there's a lot at the center of this. I think there's a notion of time pays for the crime, right? That once enough time is accrued, you've suffered long enough, we could put you back out on the street. I think a lot of imprisonment, right? Common sense says like you're just taking that harmful person away from doing more harm and then but that's a temporary thing because they go they go in there they suffer maybe they get back out they don't have a trade they 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 don't have an education or a way to to pay for their life right so they go back they revert back to to a life of crime selling drugs robbing stealing raping murdering whatever all that kind of stuff is maybe organized crime gangs all this kind of thing they go back they revert to what they know because they need to, sur- to survive. So what you're saying and not having what they're saying and not having a prison system that is for, you know, so nurturing and 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 change and evolution and and teaching people right from wrong and giving them a second crack, a true second crack at life is saying like it's of the prisoner's own volition to do that. If they don't have the volition to change, if they don't have the volition to do a 180 and change their wayward ways, then they're going to go back out on the street and go back to whatever they, wherever they came from. Right. And that's I right. That's, that's why f- I think that's that's that it's,
0: I don't think, I think there are some people that are inclined to commit, commit crimes, but I think most people commit crimes because of situations, situation. Like if you're, if you live a solid life and you have skills and you have an education and you have a job and you have money and you have all, you don't, you're, you, there's too much to risk to commit crimes. You commit crimes when there's little or no risk and high upside. And as we find out with some of these guys, they want to go back because life is better there, even though it's not very good. And I just think here's here's the bottom line for me. I think it's wrong to send people to prison. You you go to prison for um, distribution of cocaine, ten years or something like that. All right, you're gonna do your time. You might get assaulted and shanked. You might get raped. You're not going to have access to any of the things that are necessary to keep you cognizant of what's going on outside or around in the world. You're you know, yeah. Lose your freedom, lose your ability to do whatever you want. All of that, of course. But why insert these people into unsafe, like inherently unsafe situations? Like, good luck. It's like, well, I I don't know. It just seems that seems cruel and unusual to me. And so, too, does releasing a person. Into a society. And setting them up to fail by hanging it around their neck. It's like, just keep them in prison. Then what's the point of even yeah, releasing them? Sure. Just yeah. fucking keep them there. Yeah. And, it can be like, and instead of having a
1: spotlight says felon, you know, over him, you know? Yeah, that's an inch. That's a really interesting take there. Is there now correct me if I'm wrong, too. And some of our listeners may may know about this, too. Is there some kind of model going on in this film or maybe in real life in prison then and now that these people eventually get released? Again, that idea of time pays for the crime. So once enough time has accrued, once you've suffered long enough, you could get released. But is there something going on here where it's like, I don't want to say sympathy for the elderly, but also the notion of letting people out Once they've reached a certain age and are now considered much less of a threat, if not not a threat at all. Like now, now that you're toothless and that you can't possibly commit these crimes as an elderly gentleman, we're going to release you onto the world. But here's the problem with that. If that is the case, now they've done so much time and this is the only world they know. Now you're releasing these people who are completely crippled. And unable to lead a normal life because they don't know how to do it. And they have no way of learning this. It's like teaching this old dog a new trick when it's now going to be impossible to do that. So I wonder if that was a thing, too, back then where it was like, all right, they're old enough. Like, let them out. They, they don't. They only have a few years left anyway. And seeing that as like, all right, you don't have to die in prison. Like, you suffered long enough. But... It's, you know, what, what kind of life are they going to have when they're released on the outside, especially if they don't return to families. Right. A lot of their people could be gone, you know, could could have passed away or be spread to the four winds or whatever. So especially if you're not releasing them into any kind of system where they're going to be kind of nurtured back and brought back into society and taught how to live a normal life outside of this prison, outside of these prison walls.
0: This is a catch 22, and this is why I think that, you know, Europe, Western Europe, just way more progressive on this front. I think it's good. I just think it's so more, so much more complicated, and I feel like it's easy for us to ignore it because it's just over there in a prison behind walls, and they're bad men, and f- fuck them. But I just, I, I can't, you know, like I just, I, because we, especially here in this country, we just know there are so many people in prison that don't even belong there at all, and I'm of the mind you could probably release more than half of America's prison population with really no problems. Like just be like, don't fuck up again. Nonviolent offenders, especially drug offenders, especially. And just like, get out of here. Worry about your rapists, your murderers, your people who hurt children, people who commit serious white collar crime or whatever. I'm not worried about all this other shit. And putting them all together, by the way, is also heinous. That's odd. Putting a murderer... And a rapist and all of that with uh, a person who did a much lesser that, that's asking for trouble. That is a pecking order. Right. Absolutely. And especially with the, you're putting people with something to lose with people who have nothing to lose, especially in situations where there's life imprisonment. I always think about that, Very which is why I'm kind of point. for the death penalty and it, for murder, especially heinous murder, m- multiple murders, things like that. Generally speaking, conclusive evidence, of course. But I'm open to I'm, I'm becoming less that way as time goes on. But it's why I can't take it off the table because it's like there are there is a pecking order to the heinousness. That's why I was saying uh, someone like Red, three murders. I don't know, man, like we you, we shouldn't be worrying about your parole hearings for sure. You shouldn't have to worry about this at all. But what's interesting about that Brooks character having been there so long, digging, especially in the time it took place in the U.S., is that he's also being sent out into the world. And this is just nothing, but it's something I thought about pre-Medicare. So oh. he's like out there. I don't know, and he didn't pay into social security. He's not going to get any. Like so, right? It's like doubly and triply scary for someone who's elderly, woefully unprepared for life, probably ill health, a lot of different things going on. It's why we have to consider all of these different options and and just. I don't know, man. This really was a thought provoking film for me to watch from that perspective.
1: Yeah. A lot of food for thought, man. Also, when do you what happens at what point now you and I can't relate to this. Most of our listeners won't be able to relate to this. But at what point do you lose your desire for freedom and just decide inherently that this is comfortable? You know, being trapped is not a human can being in a cage is not desirable to a human just by fact of what a human is. We do not want to be a, you know, a bird in a cage like we just don't want that. So at what point does that something in you snap and make you say like, no, this is this is this is protection. This is desirable. This is what I want. You know, it's so odd to think of. I agree. Unrelatable.
0: One of of the things I want to talk about that we uh, had mentioned earlier in one of the elements of this movie of oh, This movie that people really enjoy is the idea of the bromance, the man love. Sweet Chuck wrote in and said, hey, guys, 1994 so was a hell of a year for movies. Pulp Fiction, Forrest Gump and Shawshank Redemption. I was 15, saw all three in the theater. And to this day, they are all in my collection of favorites. Shawshank expresses heterosexual love and friendship between two men so expertly. Have you seen any other movie do it this well? Mm-hmm. It's part of the reason why is it has stayed with people and grown so beloved. Keep on keeping on. Thank you, Sweet Chuck, for writing in.
1: Thank you very Appreciate much. You.
0: Yeah, so there is something about the bromance. I've always been fascinated by the bromance. It's because I have a bromance or two in my life. I've had them. Some of them are alive. Some of them are just, you know, extinguished. But male friendship is. Is a powerful force, and I've never really quite understood, except for like just the heteronormative kind of, oh, you know, you know, no get no homo kind of shit going on when people touch each other or something like that. I've always been kind of put off by that, not only because it's homophobic, but put off by that because it's like, why can't boys be and, and men be friends and be close mm. and be physical if they want, you know, hug and and shake hands and touch? And yet we celebrate that with women and not just from the perverted sexual like, you know, oh, well, <laughs> but, but, but like there's all these stories about womanhood. Sure. Right. Womanhood. Absolutely. And for some reason, something like sex in the city wouldn't work with men per se, without it being curious and weird. And I think this movie does a nice job of kind of bucking that trend and showing an element of male friendship that while we can't relate to because we're not in prison, I think is very real because I felt it and I know it. And I think most men, if not all men know that love. And I don't know why it can't be professed more openly and honestly. It doesn't mean you're gay. I don't, I don't understand. I just don't get it. So what, what do you think about the uh, the portrayal of the bromance in this film?
1: I, I mean, I think it's one of the iconic ones in fiction of all time. I really do. I mean, I put it up there. I was thinking about other ones while you were talking. I think of, you know, again, with Lethal Weapon, you think of Murtaugh and Riggs, this unlikely friendship, but they have being police officers in common. You think of Kevin Arnold and Paul Pfeiffer in The Wonder Years. These two, this unlikely Kind of duo. They're very different characters, but they have this long standing love for each other. I think of funny ones like Doogie Hauser and Vinny, right? Vinny comes climbing through the window at night, you know, and, you know, like even ones in animation like Lupin and and his right hand man, Jigen and Lupin the Third, like these are, which, you know, has been a friendship in animation and comic books and manga for decades. But I love the, I love when I see it, I think because it is so rare. And because it maybe is a little taboo and and men are afraid to embrace it, but also because I relate to it. You know, I have probably three friends in my life. I'm looking at one right now who I feel that way for. And what's really special about loving people like that is that it's hard to articulate like why. Like, for instance, I'll, I'll take PJ, right? I love him. I'll always love him like a brother, like family. But I met a lot of people in junior high school and high school that I played video games with, that I skated with daily. Why him? You know, what's at the center Mm -hmm. of that? And why him for me? Me and PJ are very different people. Yes, Mm -hmm. we have common interests, but we're very different characters. But I think that's the attraction in a way, right? That's the... There's some sort of... But there's some sort of intangible in there. It's like, why... Do you love it? But that's what makes it worth holding on to, I think, is that there's a little magic in there. There's a little alchemy, you know? And I love seeing that portrayed on screen. And they do it in a way in this movie that, again, doesn't hit you over the head. It doesn't overdo it. You just kind of see Red and Andy interacting and talking or hanging out in the film and it doesn't matter if something big's going on or just a regular, you know, something regular that happens, a daily occurrence, a conversation, a meal together, whatever. There's this there's this friendship and this love that even transcends friendship that, you know, they, they're living for each other, essentially, that, at, at a certain point. And I don't know, I just think there's something so cool about that, and that there's so many dimensions to love. We think of our significant other. I think about Helene. We think about our wives, our boyfriends, girlfriends. But there's other types of love. And I think, again, in fiction, it's just largely unexplored. I mean, you could even think about it. I'm even thinking about it in some Han Solo and Luke, right? That was one of the big things we wanted to see in these sequel trilogies is that friendship played out because we didn't get we got it in the uh, initial trilogy, but we didn't get it. We wanted more of it. Right. And we were robbed of it. You think of Lord of the Rings, Frodo and Gandalf. I mean, what kind of unlikely friendship is it? It's like this semi immortal ancient wizard and this little person. Right. It's just like so I love the f- I love that fact of like something two people finding each other. I think there's something so cool in that.
0: I also think there's something to the idea of. The opposites attract sort of sort of idea. I, I absolutely I pursued that romantically for a long time and it kind of blew up in my face over and over again. And I've kind of accepted that, at least for me, romantically. There's too much on the line to be with someone that's so different than you. That could be hard that you want to kind of be more um, parallel to a person, and I found that in Micah, but with friends, like when I think about friends of mine, we bond on certain things. Ramon is my best friend, of course. And I think of him and we but we are yin and yang in a lot of different ways, for instance. And, and it's 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 more behavioral and it's like Ramon will do most of the talking in our conversation, in our conversations and in our friendship. But right. I don't mind. And he's not doing anything wrong. It's just that, like, that's the way I'm the listener. He's the talker. Right. It's the yin and the yang. We, we always have that going on. And it's very complimentary. And I think it brings up this idea of unconditional love. And there's just certain people I have unconditional love for. And he's one of them. You're one of them. I, like, of course, family, like in uh, and, and immediate family and, and, and of course, extended family as well where you'll do anything for them. Oh, yeah. They're like and and it's the kind of thing where it's like someone calls you and says like oh I need I need you to come here right away to this random place and and from you know ninety nine out of a hundred people be like are you fucking kidding me but then there's that one person where you just don't even bother thinking about you like, Oh, yeah I guess that's what I have to do yeah drop of a hat that's you unconditional just, love yes and and so I I think that that's portrayed here but you know what else is portrayed thing that I wanted to pick your brain about was false imprisonment how do you deal with that especially and that's why I brought up the what it was at the sixth and eighth amendments before, because the warden, when he found out that this guy could be innocent, obviously he was afraid of being outed for all of the illegal activities that they've been doing as they've been laundering money in a very Ozark like way. But and he <laughs> makes, you know, and Andy makes the, the critical mistake, too, of basically, although he meant it authentically, I think, saying, like, you know, you have nothing to worry about, like, I'm not going to say anything. I just want to get out of here. I didn't do anything. He the the prison warden should have at that time assisted him in getting out of there knowing that all this was happening and just making excuses as to why it couldn't happen and then of course killing the only person that heard the the witness and all the rest it's horrifying and I just couldn't even imagine getting over that I I don't know what that does to a person and it shows the strength of Andy's character but I'm wondering what you think about the very notion of false imprisonment because that is scary shit and It happens. I mean, it's crazy that it happens. I can't believe when you read stories in the news of just people losing decades of their lives to false imprisonment. We should be so thankful for DNA and for video cameras and all the different things that are that are making sure people are guilty or absolving people from crimes. It's so essential. It's crazy to me. And we've talked about this in the past. You just get away with doing whatever you want back there. I don't even know how people caught you doing anything. Right surprise. I have no fucking idea. Like, it's amazing. I know that criminology, as we understand it, really begins in the 19th century. But it's insane that anyone got caught for anything back in the day. How how I know you just go to a farmstead in 1700. No one's there. You kill everyone. You take all their shit and you go like, how are they ever going to know it was you? It's insanity. And so it's I'm thankful that we have all this technology where there's just none of that chicanery anymore. Like, <laughs> And that's why I think people don't crime is until recently was going down precipitously. And I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that you're just not going to get away with it anymore. Surveillance. Like, there's just no way you're going to get away with it. Your phone's going to ping a tower somewhere. Someone's going to have you on their fucking ring camera across the street. Yeah. There's gonna be some sort of satellite image of, of, you know, <laughs> you, you just gotta just no get getting walking. away with it anywhere. I wouldn't, I wouldn't try. Fuck dude. You damn well know I'm not trying to commit any crimes like that. I'm not even gonna bother thinking about it. <laughs> no way. So, um,
1: <laughs> it's true so, though like you can't. Yeah. You're always there's the, the the eye in the sky is everywhere. If not the so ears. So what do you think sky. about the
0: false imprisonment though that that like Andy has to accept that and he does. I just don't think I'd ever accept it. I don't think I'd ever accept it. I think I'd probably kill myself. I mean if, if you were in that situation so what are you going to do? Absolutely. I mean it's over.
1: It's terrible. I mean, I hate to say that, but no, it's true to have hope through all that. I mean, there's two things that terrify me in relation to this issue, right? First of all, it absolutely horrifies me that this these gaps in our justice system exist, where you could put somebody away for a crime without full proof, a hundred percent evidence. Like, what the fuck is that? Like reasonable doubt and all that kind of stuff. That's scary that that exists because. That just leaves these possibilities for mistake. I mean, what's more horrifying than reading in the paper this guy that just served a 32-year prison sentence for raping somebody, and he had nothing to do with it? He wasn't even in the state. Like, you know, I mean, that's the most... And the other thing is, too, that terrifies me that I think about when I watch the film is what you just said. At what point does Andy give up? Now, he holds on to hope, and that makes him special almost godlike in a lot of ways again Christ parables but at what point do you just throw your hands up and say well I'm innocent but fuck it they they think I'm guilty and stop fighting right you hear about the guys that go into prison and they get law degrees trying to get themselves off the hook you know and, and I guess in a lot of those cases they're genuinely innocent so at what point do you not hit the law library and train yourself to be a litigator and say like you know what I mean like I I I, um, I have to get myself out of this I didn't do it I'm being there there could be no more horrifying of an idea of going away for a crime you didn't commit especially a violent crime because Dude, I couldn't even I mean, that's what I'm
0: saying it's like what? life like
1: what I know it's no insanity way. that 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 exists and yeah I mean you really it's, it is one of those films where you put yourself in these guys places especially Andy it's like wow what would I do would I just kind of throw my hands up. And then in that plot twist again, just channeling the first time seeing this film and how cool it must have been. That shock of saying because I think we go into this movie if I'm not mistaken unless I'm missing something where it 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 seems like Andy thought better of committing the crime, but we don't know 100% for sure. Until that young guy comes in from a neighboring prison and says, "Look, I had a cellmate who did this crime." And then we know that Andy's vindicated and then, but he does, he gets no help from who he needs help from, you know, you kind of wish in that moment where he's arguing with the warden and he calls him obtuse and everything that he would just stop because the warden says you could pursue this on your own, but don't involve right, exactly. me. At exactly. At that point, just do it. Right. Just, exactly. just do yeah, it. it. It's,
0: it's annoying, man. It's, <laughs> I totally agree with you. That's that one line. It's like, Oh, just walk away. You're You're sure. pushing right, it. Fine. You've done it, You've done this all yourself anyway. Like, right. It's all good. You're all good. But. Um, but of course, we learn later that he's been also digging this tunnel. He's been doing a lot of different things, to try to get himself out of there and, and but also ingratiate himself to the people around him and also have this sort of acceptance of his situation. But I was thinking, like, wouldn't we the the one thing that belies belief is that that poster hit that that hole? Yeah, it just they never t- toss his room and ripped shit off the wall behind the like poster when he, in, when he was in the hole for two months. No one ever went in there. I mean, if I were him, I would have been horrified there uh, in that time that someone was going to find that shit because we, we find that he was starting it from the basically the beginning of yeah. him t- being there so every time I watch it I'm horrified
1: they're going to find <laughs> <laughs> right exactly like
0: some something different is going to happen well since we're talking about the, uh, the pr- pr- prison employees we should talk about who is it Sam Norton is the uh, played by Bob Dutton oh, sure. is the is the warden and Hadley played by Clancy Brown who's mm. awesome is he's great one of the prison guards why I mean I know you have to have like an antagonist and shit but why would you want to be in that situation and be antagonistic and mean and rude to people Mm. I know it's like a stupid question I ask is a prison full of fucking hard-ass people they deal with insane people and crime and and violence every day but why wouldn't you want to have a more positive disposition that like you put out that positive energy and you let people cross you you don't Put the line right up to their feet and say, like, just don't even walk forward at all. It's like, just like have a more amenable way about you. And then you have a more um, probably a better situation. I'd be interested to know what the uh, not the protocol, but I guess the different philosophies are behind managing a prison, both then and now. I'm sure there's different schools of thought, but that's what bothers me about these different warden characters. Where it's like, geez, why do you have to be so fucking hard? Why can't you be nice and decent, you'd get such better results. But nonetheless, these guys are both both put on amazing performances and they show uh, what I like is is they're kind of they show it several times, but they're kind of unspoken language with each other. There's times where Norton steps back and Hadley just steps forward and does what he does, like when they kill that guy in the beginning. He doesn't say anything to him. Yeah, you know, uh, he just like walks back or whatever. And, and the guys, just, just yeah, beat it's the a well-oiled
1: machine. No talk yeah.
0: necessary. Right. And I just, I don't know, man. It's just a very interesting thing. And then they ingratiate themselves to this guy and he's doing their taxes and all this stuff. So it's a little, it's a little crazy that way. But what do you think of these two characters and, and the, the way the prison is run?
1: Yeah. I mean, chilling just a level of evil, one in a physical way and one in an emotional and, you know, sort of mental way to mentally imprison these guys and instill and, and fear and also the hypocrisy of the warden character where he's citing the Bible, he's citing the word of God and the word of Jesus. And, you know, he talks the talk, but we see he doesn't walk the walk. I mean, this guy is heinously corrupt and he's got his finger in all these pies and he's making all this money. And then the captain of the guard character, the Byron Hadley character is it is interesting what you say, because. He's exerting so much more energy than he needs to by being the way he is. Yes, it's instilling fear in the prisoners. It's making their experience, you know, horrifying and regrettable. But yeah, why? Like why? It's almost he's almost channeling. This is what I think every time I see something like this, but especially in this performance, he's almost channeling his own unhappiness in his role and his job, maybe in his family life and sort of taking that. To work. He's one of those dudes, you know, just that hostility that's created with being, you know, unhappy, you know, just an unhappy person, just a miserable person. And maybe, you know, straight up being under the thumb of this warden character who seems to exert his will onto everybody. He's, you know, he's the captain of the guard, but he's still beholden to this one dude. That's his boss. So being under this guy's thumb and being under this guy's rule can't be an easy thing either but he's just you know he's just these characters are just out and out evil and it just makes for good storytelling and it shows you what our yeah. heroes are up against and makes us root for them all the more
0: totally and well they say they talk about the good and evil I mean I guess that's part of the Christ parable that is suggested but but when he hold you know he talks about the the sandstone and the or whatever the soapstone whatever the black and white pieces and the chess pieces and all that it's it's kind of insinuated there but I want to ask you about one of the scenes that a lot of people wrote in about actually, but David Rector wrote in as well. He said, Colin and Dagan, mm. this is my all time favorite movie. No matter how wow. many times I watch it, I tear up at multiple points in the movie, specifically when Andy gets the guy's beers on the roof and when Red and Andy meet up on the beach at the end. Did either of you tear up at all watching this classic? So I was curious what you thought about the rooftop scene. We'll talk about the beach scene next. But what do you think about that rooftop scene and how he kind of see, that's the kind of attitude that I would have in prison. At least I would try to if I was there, it would be like, What can I do to ingratiate myself here and make myself not a fucking villain or someone that you need to deal with or worry about or pick on whatever the case might be? And I really like that scene because it shows a lot of humanity. Again, the key H word as we talk about this movie. What do you think about the rooftop scene and um, the tearjerker nature, I guess, of the film?
1: I love that rooftop scene. I defy you not to want a beer, a bottle of suds. Well, you watch that scene. Ever, I went out and got a nice six-pack of Pilsner, cans of Pilsner, just because I knew this was coming up. Have a couple of beers every time that scene comes on. It just something so cool about that. Mm. You know, it's interesting what you say about Andy sort of ingratiating himself and and sort of making friends, but I don't know. For me, there's a selflessness in it, because these guys aren't really bothering him. This is not Boggs and his crew of sisters who are are actually a danger to Andy, right? These are These are characters that are pretty innocuous. Right, They might not welcome him into the fold, but certainly he's not running afoul of these guys. I think there's a real selflessness to to the gesture and, again, something in Andy's nature that's really odd and unexpected. And maybe that's because we don't see that kind of generosity in a lot of people where it's not really about them. It's about doing something out of sympathy or love or friendship for somebody else. But I think that's what makes it so interesting, and it makes it—it it does make it a little bizarre. But maybe that's sad that it's weird, right? Is that you know there's not a lot of characters who would who would take it on the chin. Certainly, run afoul of this guard who's ready to push him off the roof, right? Right in this moment, in front of all these bystanders, by the way. So that's a that's a really interesting scene for me, and you could see there's something so heartfelt and. Just something joyful to behold in his fellow inmates reaction to that small luxury of just feeling not just a cold beer on a hot day after a hard day's work, but just feeling like Red says, feeling like they're kings of the castle, you know, feeling like they're lords of the domain, like they could be doing this on the roofs of their own homes. Just having that sort of, um, you know, being treated like human beings for that moment, for that morning of just having three beers apiece. And how, you know, they, they're not used to that. They're they're used to being treated like so, so many cattle. And just to feel like actual human men for that afternoon or that morning is just, you know, there's something so heartfelt in that scene. And then the ending, dude, every time, I, first of all, I love the way the camera pulls out because it's a very sentimental ending. It's a happy ending, but we don't really get to see it. Right? We see them kind of exchange glances. They hop down. As the camera pulls out, we see them drop their gear and embrace. But by that point, we're already pulled out pretty wide. And then we're only pulling out wider. But I love what it's saying about you don't need to, you know what's going to happen from here. These guys are going to grow old together and they finally have each other and they're at peace and they have their freedom and they'll have each other to lean on and they won't be alone and, you know, all that thing. It's, I, I get, A tear in my eye every single time I see it and I'm happy that it's a happy ending because a lot of people could say, well, that's that feel. It doesn't feel tacked on. It feels earned in this in this case.
0: And again, it goes back to the bromance and like the, the platonic nature of it, though, but of having they love each other unconditionally. It's unconditional love. Then they want to be with each other. You know, it's it's quite romantic, you know, but like little R romantic and I, I, I dig it and actually we have it. let me see here bring it up here. Uh, Dylan Paulson wrote in and said the original ending for this movie wasn't supposed to include the scene on the beach where red and Andy meet each other and hug. The ending was supposed to be more ambiguous as to if our heroes ever meet each other again so um and he asked how we feel about it we've already talked about it a little, bit. he says he would have felt cheated if it wasn't there. I agree and I, you know what I but my favorite scene I think is actually. What really wells up in me and makes me sad is when the shot of Red walking up to the tree when the first time you see the tree where Andy explains that he like made love to his fiance and like asked her to marry him under this tree and you see the tree for the first time and it's like, wow, it's it's beautiful. And it's, it's just what he described at the end of this this old wall. And you picture you See, in my mind, not remembering the ending at all, really. I was like, oh, it's real." this is especially sad because he never got to see it again. And his friend has gone back to see the tree and to go and find this thing. And he he told him about this volcanic rock that would be out of place. And but then you realize that he went there after he got out and left him stuff there and told him about it and hoped that he would go. And that just increases the love that they have for each other, I think. And that he didn't forget that he left his hint. And I also couldn't help but wonder. What if Red didn't go back and then someone found that yeah. in 100 years or something like what kind of interesting story that would have been? Because he never really says what the town is and all of that. He, he does a nice job. And also, it's awesome to watch Tim Robbins just go through and get all the money and use all the fake IDs and all the fake passports that they, they accumulated over the years to kind of take what what is the equivalent of millions of dollars today as he escapes to Mexico. So um, what would you have felt robbed? like Dylan if you didn't get the ending that was satisfying here even though like you said they have that it's not a drone shot at that time a helicopter shot of them moving away and you see them hug and it's so nice but you don't know what they're saying to each other you don't know how it goes from there you don't know what their adventures are from there it's there's so many questions good point I don't want I don't want a sequel but it would be cool to know like oh did they what do they do you know a, you know, a little a little epilogue as it were as it were so yeah. Would you have felt robbed if you didn't see what you saw? Would it, If it ended prematurely, maybe if it ended with the letter being found or maybe even ended with him just seeing the tree and walking up along the wall. And then it ends there, you know, without yeah, even seeing the
1: letter. You're rooting for these guys so hard, not just for them as individuals, but for their friendship. I kept thinking like, oh, my God, what if somebody cut down that oak tree now? Which wall is it? You know, like, thank God that oak tree was still intact when Red got there. But. It is, there's something very touching about them both seeing this plan through and going through the effort to, you know, try to make this thing happen. And then again, for me, you see these two characters go on this tumultuous journey. You want to see it pay off. Again, the ending doesn't feel tacked on, it feels earned. And there's something really satisfying in it for us because, yes, these guys could have gotten out of prison. Andy escapes, Red eventually gets absolved they live out their lives peacefully or whatever, but could they have ever truly been happy knowing this level of bromance if they didn't culminate it together? Right. Hmm. So there would have been something, a piece missing. They both would have had a hole in their heart, right. If they weren't able to do this together. So the fact that this plan, plan a comes to fruition is always so satisfying for me. And I think what you said is really true, Kyle, like as that, you know, we get that dolly out shot of them embracing on the beach and I'm sure exchanging pleasantries and they hadn't seen each other for a long time. And but there are a lot of questions, you know, where do they go from here? How do they you know, how do they live out their adventures as men growing older together and all that kind of stuff? So it leaves us with enough uh, enough questions too to be to make it interesting rather than just tack on an ending and the end and. You know, we're at Z and that's it. You know, there's yep. enough there where, yeah, it, it, there's it's fun. It's a fun ending, I think.
0: Dig, is there anything left unsaid that you wanted to touch on with the Shawshank Redemption?
1: You know, it's it was fun. It was fun to do this again. You know, I, I thought about this in just movies that I find eternally rewatchable. I certainly put this film in this category. I think of other things that a lot of people would cite. The Godfather, Goodfellas some of the Lethal Weapon movies. But then I have other movies in this sort of um, this grouping that a lot of people be like, what? Like I think of movies like Thrashing, right? Or Rad, <laughs> you know, movie, the first Teenage Ninja Turtles movie. Like, so it's interesting that you could put all sorts, low budget, campy, beautifully crafted, iconic, legendary, all in the same grouping. And I wonder what, you know, I guess a lot of it is beholden to our various tastes. But when we get to do these movies, and we've done great movies, you know, I think of movies that we've talked about, like Blade Runner, um, Saving Private Ryan is another one. You know, they're they're wonderful movies, not, uh, you know, people that, not movies that I would put in my all-time favorites. I'm
0: scrolling through now, right now, Revenge of the Sith. Revenge of the Sith. Is another one
1: but you know it's nice to talk about these movies because it's probably only what we all probably have what a couple of dozen maybe 25 movies that we would consider this movie comes on tv i'm watching it this movie comes on tv tonight i'm gonna and the last half hours on tv i'm gonna watch it even though we just talked about it it's like has that sort of resonance for me so it was fun to it was fun to talk about and you know learn a little bit about frank darabont too you know i like to learn about my directors knew very little about him, has collaborated yeah, with Stephen King him, like actually. three times. Hmm. Right? He's uh, he's done The Mist and The Green Mile, too, which were Stephen King's uh, novellas or, or novels. So he was he's an interesting one, too. Actually, I found out about him. He was one of the script doctors for Private Ryan, which we just talked Uh-oh. about last week.
0: Interesting. I love that whole script doctor thing. Yeah,
1: there's something really and cool about Who you about
0: find that. out are script doctors and like... I'm trying to think of who there's like some random ones where that that it's like, wow, this is what you do or what you're known to do. Because you're not supposed to know.
1: That. It's no, a, probably no, yeah, a nicely paid gig, but, you know, oh, you're yeah, not going to sure. be in the
0: credits, you know, I'm oh, sure
1: that type of thing. Yeah,
0: yeah. He's I'm looking at his thing now. Yeah. Uncredited writing works. He hasn't directed a film since since The Mist. That <laughs> no, was, that's uh, interesting. Years
1: ago. Oh, you know what he did, Kyle? He helmed Walking Dead. When oh, it okay. went yeah. from oh, yeah. Robert Kirkman's comic graphic novel to the screen for AMC, he mm. was running the first season of that show writing. I, I think he only directed the, the pilot or the first episode, but he had a really cantankerous relationship with AMC and was booted off by the second season, I think. Which interesting. is interesting. Well,
0: he, he dodged a bullet because th- that show's still going on, I think, but. Oh, I, I agree. Know. I can't I can't imagine how it's still going out. He, I also am seeing here he wrote a bunch of episodes of Young Indy.
1: Yes. Cool. That was what, 86, very, 87? Yeah, yeah. Something like that. So yeah, very, that's yeah. Interesting nice. dude.
0: Interesting dude. Very nice. All right, my friend, my friend. My friend. That's uh the Shawshank Redemption. I don't know where you watched it, but I watched it on Amazon Prime. I, I, yeah, I didn't same. see it anywhere else.
1: Oh, no, no, it's on HBO Max right now. Oh, that's right. That's yeah, right. So I don't it. have
0: HBO anymore. I canceled HBO. Dude. Oh, by the way, for the next show we're doing, I won't say what it is right uh, here, but I was doing the math and I'm like, this must be on Disney Plus. And so I got Disney Plus and then it wasn't on there. And I'm like, oh, my God, I'm so nope. stupid. And it was on something I already had. And I was yep. like, oh, geez, Louise. So, yep. um, all right, my friend. Well, let's end every episode. Well, let's end this episode rather like we do each episode with a dad joke. All right.
1: Our pal, Andrew Cruz, coming at us from Twitter DMs. Kyle, he gives us this joke. I like this one. Kyle, did you hear about the guy who dipped his balls in glitter? No. Pretty nuts. (laughs) (laughs) That's good. I like that one. That's one of my favorite ones as of late.
0: That's a good one. I I enjoyed that very much. Solid,
1: solid. Well done, my friend. Well done. (laughs) Thank
0: you, Andrew. Thank you for your time, my friend. And thank you all out there for your love, kindness, and support of all things Knockback, Last Stand Media. Patreon.com slash Last Stand Media for early ad-free access. The ability to submit your questions, comments, concerns, thoughts, and ideas. Get your name in the credits, et cetera, and so on. We could not do it without you. And of course, watch the show on YouTube if you'd like. Most of you like to listen to it, but some of you like to watch. I don't blame you. Perverts. Yeah. In terms of watch versus uh, listen this is the most uh like percentage wise more listen to podcast than the other two shows we do which is interesting we have most those morgan freeman voices that's right that's exactly
1: right i like to think
0: christopher yeah, that's i wanted to ruin it all right thank you all out there we'll see you next time until then goodbye Knockback, a retro and nostalgia podcast, is a product and trademark of Last Stand Media and Collins Last Stand LLC and is recorded from Central Virginia and the Philadelphia suburbs, USA. The show was conceived by and is produced by me, Colin Moriarty. My co-host is Dagan Moriarty. Knockback's executive producer is Dustin Furman, and the show is edited by associate producer Ben Smith. Steven Nieder, Ross Marenka, Miguel A. Brewer, Morgan Ashley, Azan, Michael Vecchio, Jerome Ferrera, SL the FMA, Daniel Diamora, Brad Cooley, Jeremy Key, Patrick Leslie, Malachi Wall, Dave Cowell, Donald John Vader, Steven Innerfield, Josh Sullinger, Madcats, Bloodborne Cart, Sultan Alcatani, David Ghetto, Lord Starscream, Jacob Donovan, Eduardo Perez, my name is Mayo, Logan Byford, Eddie Medina, Jason R. Zahn, Christopher Nogg, Zeno Adam, Grayson Maxwell, Cody Woodall, Blake Nesbitt, Sort of Serious Gaming, Colin Farley, Mark Arnold, Zia Parrox, Henry Groth, Relentless Rex, Tristan Palacios, Drew Mullen, Renegar Graham, Christian R. Jad Rita, Patrick. Skipper, Brian Hernandez, Espinosa, Chris Kelly, Remington Wilson, Dustin Graff, Zach Cohen, Peyton Stone, Jalapeno, Josh Howland-Rui, Quentin Vedens, John Keegan, Michael Buffel, Dan Root, Asak Parades, Talisman, Christopher Morgan, Andreas Westling, Randall Holsey, Robbie Nauman, William Holbert, Josh Godfrey, Kalike Souza, Vornak, Betty Ann Moriarty, Daniel Johnson, H-Tronge, Trey Woodward, Antonio C, Jay Getter, Assassinated Devil, Bjorn Campbell, Jeff Mercado, Gregory Slavinsky, Jordan Gale, Of Fortuna, John Zile, Boots, Tyler Brown, Megadet, Poot, Gavin Newland, Alex Lapierre, Saul Balcazar, Brian White, Raul Melendez, Eric Hart. Matt Flowers Kinnam's Joseph Baker Chris Moore Caswell Anti Kinnan and Chris Dave Alvarez Will Hernandez Chris Galvin Justin Gonzalez Mason Cadillac Ollie Fritz Zach Allen, Kyle Hagel Colin Love Daryl E. Naaman Ryan R. Kittredge Toby Ryland Michael S. Stewie 108 Patrick Montgomery Simon Dunbar D.B. Cooper Fad Houdini Richter 86 Todd B. Canning Barrett Boswell Christopher DeVio, Chris Morton Johnny Waffles Roto 24 Jonathan Coach, Sean Mason Impossible Traveler Josh Gravelick Jordan Town Brian Chan Organic Produce Carlos Algorit Dominic Mike Menzel Richard Hebert III Miranda Grubba, Josh Yeager, Martin Beck, Joey Andrzejczyk, Nathan R., Joe McPartland, Gary Cavallo, Christopher Moore, Jacob Bell, Dennis Usel, Lou and Ray Loper, Jonathan Cortez, Dylan Burns, John Schultz, David Chestnut, Tom Quinn, Spencer F., Anton K., Alan Tremblay, Tyler Bellow, Ryan T. Mandel, Tony Zaniga, Sean Battershall, Robbie Hensley, Shane Miller, Alex Cabrera, Lennon Brixey, Hugo's Desk, Peter Reynolds, Anthony Vazquez Adam Kinniston, The Rose Experience and Grizzled Veterans Media, Tyler Goodwin, William O'Carroll, Jorge Powell, Max Cannon, Phil Krohn, Throw 7 Adam Nix, Josh McKinney, Michael Gates, Alex Gates, Ryan Robertson, Sean Chandler, Lockmore, Gio Corsi, Joey Gondoliker, Alex Monez, Daryl Pennington, Justin Payne, Justin Wagaman, David I. Colucci, Paul Joyce, Chad Lewis, Enrique Perez, Joshua Smallwood, Spencer Brand, Don Lee, John Cordero, Keith A. Lewis, Ashley Carlson, Marya Scarson peterson Ryan Greenwood, Tyler Harris, Matthew Perdue, Patrick Harper, Mad Media, Jonathan Rice, and Casual Misfits Gaming.